Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends. This is a Stimulus Thump COVID edition where we disambiguate the confusing COVID-related floatsome and jetsome and pick out the interesting tidbits from the scientific literature and from time to time answer your questions. And today, December 21st, 2020, what else can we discuss? But come on, the vaccine. Now, you know, and I know, and I know that you know that there is a lot of info a lot of news reporting on all these vaccines. I don't need to report that. Don't need to rehash the news. What I'm going to focus on today are sleep. I'm going to focus on antipyretics or anti-inflammatories and how all of those things relate to vaccine responsiveness or how well does a vaccine work. We're going to get into the published side effects and adverse reactions of the Pfizer vaccine because now we finally have actual data on that at least as far as what happens for the first two months after vaccination. But before we dive into that matter, I want to get to two listener questions. First off, several of you have asked me if I'm still doing ERCast. That is my emergency medicine clinical podcast. And the answer to that is yes, that's actually my full-time job. My day job, you might say. It still lives on at ERCast.org. I'll link to that in the show notes. And I'm guessing the reason that I've gotten this question from several of you is that there was always an ER cast available for free without subscription. And now all of the content is subscription-based. There's CME, there's an app, all the fancy stuff. And ER cast now lives at Hippo Education. And I'll say this, I think it's 10 times better than it used to be because now I've got a team of people And I don't say this with false modesty, a team of people who are way smarter than me involved with ERCast and oh my gosh, I couldn't be prouder of it. All right, moving on. Our second listener question comes from Toby Glatt who asks, how exactly does this mRNA vaccine work? Since we're going to talk about the vaccine, eh, probably a good place to start. Well, Toby, here's the short answer. mRNA is the code that cells use to make proteins. You can think of it as like a ticker tape that has to get translated. Our current vaccines in the United States, Pfizer's and the now just FDA approved Moderna vaccine have mRNA that codes for the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. That's that little flower you see on all the pictures of the virus, the thing that lives on the surface. So a good target for antibodies. Now, what happens is, is that mRNA gets injected into your body, goes into your immune cells. And frankly, how that works, getting it from that vaccine and into the immune cells, well, it's a little bit beyond this conversation, a little bit deeper than I want to get into. But let me just say that mRNA is like a delicate flower and has to be safely delivered into a cell. And the process of getting it in there, frankly, it is Nobel Prize level stuff. And if all this ends up working out, the future of medicine could be very different with mRNA technology. But what's new here is the stability of the mRNA, how it's preserved, how it's protected until it gets into that cell. That's the big leap in technology. So the mRNA gets into your cell and then that mRNA, so that ticker tape that's got code on it, that mRNA gets decoded by something called a ribosome. And as the ribosome decodes the mRNA, it creates the protein that is written 
on that mRNA's code. So that ticker tape has got the instructions on how to make a protein, goes into the ribosome, ribosome makes it. You can think of that ribosome as both a factory and a translator or decoder at the same time. That's actually a pretty amazing molecule. And in the case of the mRNA SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, what the ribosome within your own body, your own immune cell produces is the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Now that protein goes onto the surface of that immune cell, of your own immune cell that's just made it, gets recognized as something foreign that's not supposed to be here, and then antibodies get made to it. That's actually not just antibodies. It's a whole host of immune responses. So then the next time your body sees that spike protein, such as it's from an actual COVID exposure, you are ready with the immune response. One thing this doesn't do, and this has been in the news as a bit, I don't know, it's like a bit of misinformation, is alter your own DNA. This vaccine does not do that. And the mRNA that is injected into you, so that code for the protein is very short-lived. It's rapidly broken down, has no further activity. So you're not going to carry that mRNA around with you for the rest of your life. Now onto another news story that's causing a lot of consternation. I'm recording this on December 20th. And the big story today is that there is a new mutation in SARS-CoV-2 possibly leading to increased transmissibility. It went from humans to minks, mutated in the minks, and then back to humans. And this is happening in Europe, and there's all sorts of shutdowns and lockdowns and border closings. And I said possibly increased transmissibility because the science, frankly, is much slower than the press reaction as it should be. It might actually not be more transmissible, but there's some suggestion that it is. Now, that's not great news by any stretch. But the question I had is, how is that going to affect how well the vaccine works? And, you know, you're not able to test it against every new mutation because there are so many mutations. I mean, this is what viruses do. Researching this, I think it's summed up well by science writer Derek Lowe, who says, quote, The good news continues to be that none of the mutations studied so far in the general population seem to be able to evade the antibodies raised by the current vaccines. That doesn't mean that it can't happen. And as we start putting selection pressure on the virus by vaccinating people, we'll have to keep a close eye out for anything like that developing. Now, I want to take a look at vaccine adverse reactions and side effects. Many of you have already gotten your first dose of the vaccine. And I was actually speaking with a friend of mine last night who was one of the very first people to get one. And he said, that the day afterward, he had such profound fatigue, he felt like he could fall asleep standing up. And then after that, after that day, he was feeling pretty good. But beyond anecdote, we now have the actual data telling us the side effects and adverse reactions of the Pfizer vaccine. Because as we've said before in the show, what we've had up to this point have been press releases. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine just over a week ago, titled Safety and Efficacy, of the BNT162B to mRNA COVID-19 vaccine, or whatever, the Pfizer vaccine. And you guys know the numbers on how effective it is, but talking about side effects, most people, circa 80%, some pain at the injection site, a little redness at the injection site. And almost all of the pain at the injection site was mild to moderate. And moderate being it interferes with your activity, but doesn't prevent daily activity. Interestingly, pain was a little less common in those over 55 than under. 
and there wasn't much of a difference in the local reaction found between the first and the second dose. So it's not going to feel good at the shot site in most people. But let's get into the bigger question, which is the systemic effects, things like fatigue, headache, fever. All of those things happen. They were more common in younger than older patients and more common after the second shot. Now, fatigue was by far the most common side effect, and that happened in over half of the vaccine recipients. So the chances are you're going to feel fatigued. But this is so interesting. And I mean, I love this about studies of this type. When there's a placebo, almost a quarter of placebo recipients also had fatigue. Make of that what you will. Let's talk about fever. We're going to get to that in a little bit when we talk about acetaminophen. Fever with a temp 38 Celsius or higher, so that's 100.4 Fahrenheit, uncommon after the first dose. And after the second dose, 16% of younger patients and 11% of older patients. So rare after the first dose, still happened, but in the minority after the second. And what about really high fever? Talking 38.9 Celsius, talking 102.9 Fahrenheit, so high, oh my God, high fever. That was quite uncommon. After the first dose for vaccine recipients, that was two out of a thousand. And after the second dose, eight in a thousand. So happens that really high fever happens, but way, way, way less commonly. And fevers and chills were most predominant in the first day or two after vaccination. And then quickly tapered off after that. And some other things that, that showed up, muscle pain and chills and joint pain did happen after the first shot. It was like circa 10% for all of those, you know, a little, little plus, little minus, and then doubled in frequency after the second shot. And that's not a mystery to you. You know from the news reports that people who got the vaccine, they really knew it after they got the first shot and then really, really, really knew it after they got the second one because they felt like crap. There was a smattering of swollen lymph nodes in the vaccine group. And big question, did anyone die in this study? Yes, people did die, but it didn't appear to be vaccine related. Quoting from the study, quote, two vaccine recipients died, one from arteriosclerosis and one from cardiac arrest, as did four placebo recipients. So what to expect here? I mean, your body is pumping out a viral protein. It's then going to have a significant immune response to that. You know, you know that head and shoulders commercial? I don't know if you remember this, but somebody put on their dandruff shampoo. I don't even remember if it was head and shoulders, but they put on a dandruff shampoo and it's like, oh, 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 it's tingling. It's tingling. And then someone say, that's how you know it's working. So pretty clear that you've got a good chance of feeling crummy after the vaccine. Now, one thing that is common, even recommended after a vaccine is some sort of analgesic or antipyretic. Something that's going to reduce the pain, reduce the aches, reduce the fever. Oftentimes that drug is acetaminophen or ibuprofen. Now, what I'm going to say next may not apply to COVID at all, because I'm going to be making inferences from studies done on other vaccines. And as was said a few minutes ago, mRNA vaccines are a completely novel mechanism. This is a completely novel virus. So put many grains of salt on the next commentary but I frankly think it's the most interesting part of the podcast. Taking acetaminophen following a vaccine. Good idea, bad idea. From a feeling comfortable level, you know, I, I want to feel good. It's a freaking awesome idea because oftentimes getting a vaccine makes you feel terrible. 
but feeling terrible is kind of the cost of doing business when your body's immune response is ramping up. But let's look at a very specific aspect of that question, good idea or bad idea, and that is, will taking acetaminophen interfere with the robustness of your body's immune response? This has been extensively studied, and one of the big ones that really impacted thinking on this was published in Lancet 2009. And the study authors divided infants getting their primary and secondary vaccination series into two groups. A group getting prophylactic acetaminophen, and they got three prophylactic doses every six to eight hours for the first day. And the vaccinations were all the infant stuff you get, you know, pneumococcus, H-flu, rotavirus, hepatitis, pertussis, tetanus, diphtheria, you know, the big slug. So half the kids got prophylactic acetaminophen and half the kids did not. And that group allocation of prophylactic acetaminophen versus nothing was continued through their booster vaccines. What happened? The kids who got acetaminophen had less fever, fever about half as often. All right, no big shocker. But the big shocker was that antibody concentrations were significantly lower for multiple antibody types in the acetaminophen group. It wasn't for all of them. So, you know, not every aspect of every vaccine was affected, just some, just some antibody types. Other studies have also shown decreased antibody concentrations following vaccination with prophylactic acetaminophen. And in case you were wondering, ibuprofen doesn't get a get out of jail free card here. It has also shown an association with decreased antibody concentrations. Now, on the other hand, there have been some studies that have shown no significant blunting of antibody response. And there's some old studies that demonstrated an increased antibody response when taking aspirin after vaccination. I have not seen that replicated for several decades. So, you know, may, I don't know maybe there's something unique to aspirin and the particular flu vaccine that they were studying. Maybe there's something to it. But the preponderance of evidence for the past 20 years would suggest, not all, not all the evidence, but the preponderance would suggest against a beneficial effect of taking acetaminophen or ibuprofen following vaccination as relates to antibody production. And the biggest impact on immune response to vaccines seems to be if the medication is given at the time of vaccination. If it's taken therapeutically afterwards, the impact diminishes or disappears. In the end, we don't know the effect of acetaminophen or ibuprofen or anything else as it affects immunogenicity or let's say the potency of one of these mRNA vaccines. It's possible, although I think improbable, that something like acetaminophen could boost your immune response. It's also possible that it could diminish the response. My take on this is that personally, I will take neither unless absolutely necessary. Like I've got such a high fever, I just can't take it. I mean, you know, your, your brain's not going to melt with a fever of 102, 103. Maybe I'm getting in the 104, 105 level. Yeah, I'd probably be taking it. I mean, we have a big fear of fever in our society, just any fever. But fever after vaccine is not necessarily a bad thing. And at least prophylactically treating for fever following vaccination has been shown in some patient populations to decrease the immune response. I want to finish up talking about sleep. I put this out in a newsletter a few months ago. I, I don't, actually don't think I ever recorded a podcast on it, but I want you to think about sleep as one of your supporting factors 
for improving your chances of a favorable vaccine response. I can't say whether what I'm about to say applies to the mRNA SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, because this stuff that I'm about to say has not been studied for that vaccine. But many of you suffer from chronic sleep disturbance by the nature of your work schedule. And personally, I never gave a second thought to sleep when I would get flu shots. I frankly would get flu shots as a matter of convenience, like during an early morning or maybe during my night shift when the emergency department wasn't too busy. Some years I got the flu, other years I didn't. Now, surely some of that was overall vaccine efficacy, but now I have to wonder if some of it had to do with what was going on with my sleep. So the literature on sleep and vaccinations is kind of a mixed bag, but I think that there's enough signal that we should pay attention. As in, if you can get a vaccination around a time of quality sleep. Here's the long and the short of it with the data. One study showed that compared to good sleepers, college students with insomnia had a trend toward weaker antibody development after flu shots. So that was just kind of general good sleep versus bad sleep. But here's one that was a single night of sleep deprivation study. Many of you can relate to that. One month after getting a hepatitis A vaccine, those who were allowed to sleep had double the antibody production compared to the group that stayed up all night. One night of sleep deprivation, you can see the effect on antibody production after the vaccine a month later. And here's an interesting one with some differences in gender that sleep-deprived men, but not women, had a lower five-day antibody response after a flu vaccine. But in that study, after seven weeks, there was no apparent effect. And lastly, for a hepatitis B vaccine, it was found that shorter sleep duration predicted decreased antibody response. Bottom line, we know that sleep matters in myriad aspects of health. So adding to that, consider if possible and... It might not be, I acknowledge that, but if you can, time your vaccinations for a time when you have decent pre and post sleep. Will that change what happens with your COVID shot? I have no idea. Data on previous studies, which were not mRNA based, they were not on this virus, suggested a sleep benefit. Some evidence for pre-sleep, some evidence for post-sleep. And that is gonna wrap it up for today. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe to Stimulus on pretty much any podcatcher you use, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes. And if it happens to be iTunes, throw down a review and rating. I read all those reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.